History Lecture 102. This is Rabbi Bleiweiss. We are picking up from where we left off. Um, America, uh, the American Jewish community is now a well-established uh, reality by the end of the 19th century. As, as we find it, we found the initial Sephardi uh, population, which had mostly acculturated and assimilated and intermarried, um, joined by the very liberal, often reformed Germans, uh, mid-century were, were suddenly replaced by um, hundreds of thousands of uh, Jews, mostly from Eastern Europe, mostly Russian, um, mostly or in, in origin, so that by, um, I mean, even though I'm doing this in sweeping terms, we're kind of holding in the 19th century, by World War I, um, the American Jewish community would, would, would be well over two million. What's over two million? The American Jewish community. There'd be um, there over two million Jews in America. It's a lot relatively quickly. Um, who traces their roots back in America? Where your, fa your family uh, went over when? Okay. Before World War II. Before World War II, okay, Arye? Your family, your family, your father's, your father's family is, is German, no? That's what I, that's what I call Frank. It's back on my dad's side. On my dad's side, I'm German, Polish, Washington. Okay. Uh, Do you have any sense? Did they come during this mass immigration starting the 1880s with the big uh, pogroms in yes, Eastern Europe? Yes, they did. I think they arrived in 1906. Makes sense. So, um, been in 1890, uh, from about 1890, most immigrants would indeed, as as has become uh, legendary, uh, but it's really based on truth, they, most immigrants would pass through Ellis Island and um, Sometimes the conditions in Ellis Island were indeed brutal, as they're sometimes made out to be. Uh, there were xenophobic officers who made Jews feel like they had to conceal their Jewishness, their heritage, their distinct um, clothes and name and accent. Um, now, it's true, you can imagine the long journey, and at the end of yesterday we told the story, were you here for the story of Fagin? <coughs> Just to illustrate, illustrate the, uh, the, how complex, how fraught it was for the Jews to make this journey. They would invest the savings of their li lifetime. And in this one true story, um, the, uh, a family made it as far as Antwerp where the doctor inspecting them told them that the little girl, Fagy, had trachoma and couldn't go, but the rest of the family could and the tickets were non-refundable. And this, this was their life savings. I'm, I'm reviewing the story of Fagy we said yesterday. And the family made the, uh, the, the choice, they, they, they left Fagy. They left the little girl in Antwerp alone, orphaned, so that they could make it to America. And that, that, those, those, were the, uh, those were the stakes. Now, um, uh, utterly cruel, utterly inhuman, right? It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a horrific story, but it's what it, it describes, it conveys the desperation of these people to uh, escape the life of hardship that they found. And we described that in detail yesterday, the newly urban lives of desperation that, the, at, that, that had no financial prospects, only grim anti-Semitism everywhere they looked where America promised so much. How old was a uh, little girl, I don't know the exact age. You could look it up in Irving Howe's World of Our Fathers. That's where the story comes from. Um, so now the immigrants are making this massive voyage. A lot of the time, the, the trip lasted longer than their kosher food supplies. Most of them, indeed, still ate kosher food. They went from the shtetl. We talked about the breakdown of traditional life, and it's true that not everybody was holding, 
But certainly, relative to what we think of assimilated Jews nowadays, uh, the, the ritual aspects of lives, of their lives, keeping kosher, speaking Yiddish, certainly, uh, what we associate as culturally connected to their tradition, to their roots, those were all there. Uh, they found when they came to Ellis Island that there was no kosher food to be found, not, nothing to be bought. Um, not until about 1911 did they finally uh, provide kosher food for the arrivals, for those coming in. The um, clerks generally, and this is against the widely known stereotype, which is not really true, most of the clerks, clerks in Ellis Island were professional and um, most of them did not force the Jews to change their name. Are you, know what I'm, are you familiar with what I'm refuting here? If you don't know what I'm refuting, then it's not an interesting argument. But there's, there's a canard out there that the Jews came and they worshipped Shalowitz and, uh, or, or, or Greenstein, and they came to uh, Ellis Island, and the clerk, did, with distaste, said, that's a Jewish name, you won't be Shalowitz here, uh, rather you will, be, um, you will be the Smiths. And you will be Greenstein, but rather you'll be, uh, what's that? No, Green sounds too Jewish, too. Uh, you'll be, <laughs> Johnson would be more like it, right? In other words, anglicizing their names. Um, that happened, but it wasn't usually the clerk's fault, even if the clerks weren't entirely uh, all that hospitable to them. Often that happened because, um, A, sometimes they had difficulty deciphering the documents that they had to fill out, and they misspelled or misfilled in their names. They often didn't write in English, so the misunderstandings would lead to a, a name change. Uh, but sometimes, and frequently, the Jews themselves changed their name. They understood, or at least they felt, that, uh, that, the, that the only way to make it in the Golden of Medina was to, uh, was to play the game and to, uh, um, to look like a good, card-carrying um, non-Jew. And that's why, um, certainly when you look, let's say, some of the famous Jews, Jews involved in the media um, in the earlier part of the 20th century, and not just earlier, there's some, there's some contemporary figures too who have very distinctly Jewish names and they chose to anglicize. Um, in Berkeley, I wrote my, uh, my, uh, my, my thesis on the Jewish humor of, well, his real name is Alan Stewart Kennigsberg, but he's more popularly known as Woody Allen and the like. Yeah, we could probably, we could cite it, we could be here all day giving examples of famous people who anglicize their names. Yeah. Um, that actually happened to one of my, one of my parents' uh, rabbis about 20 years ago, my rabbi Gregory, and he did some genealogy research and realized that his name was changed from Grunberger by a clerk. Grunberger to uh, Gregory, yeah. Grunberger the Gregory. clerk changed it? Yeah. That's the stereotype, and indeed it probably happened a, a few times, but it was not the overwhelming reality, no, but okay. No, was, no, and that, in his case, that maybe so? But he, uh, he changed it, like, I think maybe 10, 15 years ago. Back to the original? Was, uh, Good for him. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, what did definitely take place, and this is, this is something I think I mentioned in Gemara class, um, was that certain traditions, even among those Jews that were acculturating and trying to lose their Jewish identity, certain things ran very deep. Um, when they had to fill out these forms, um, they were told to write an X, but they didn't want to use the X. And overwhelmingly, the immigrants, rather than Xing the, the box, they rather circled the box with the correct an, uh, animal. What uh, with, with with the correct uh, you know with, with correct answer? So why do you want? So if you, if you invert the x or you you tilt the x ever so slightly at an angle, it looks like 
a cross, a plus, a, a plus sign, if you would, but uh, but some of them recognized a cross and wanted nothing to do with the Christian religion, and so they made a circle, and that indeed was turned into a source of of, of, of um, what's that? It's an English letter. Fine, okay, that's what they did, and that was turned into a source of parody, and the circle, which in in Yiddish, anybody know the Yiddish word for circle? Very similar word, keikel. The Jews then talked about their keikels and their non-Jewish uh, 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 adversaries used the term against them, and keikel became abbreviated to kike, and that's what that's that's the source of the uh, of the Jew the slur against Jews. Um, when they came, then the, they found that the streets indeed were not exactly paved with gold, and many found great hardship. Uh, how were you going to make a living? You didn't have a mastery. Most of them didn't speak the, the local tongue. And even if they had learned English in the old country, they didn't speak it American style. Americans generally are, are xenophobic. They like Americans. That's one of the reasons why Americans, relative to almost any country in the world, speak only English. They speak almost no other languages relative to their, uh, to their experience because they, they, like, they like it the American way. Um, and that would be a huge nisayon, especially as Jews. Some of the Jews were there to, to, to assimilate. But many of them came with warm feelings, even strong feelings about Yiddishkeit, about keeping Torah and keeping mitzvos. But the idea that you could do that and somehow simultaneously make it in America, achieve any level of material success, um, seemed to be antithetical. And, and to do that and keep Shabbos, Shabbos, many perceive, was the ultimate nisayon in America. You have to imagine by the, in, the, in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, um, there was the labor unions, many of which were spearheaded later by the Jews and with their socialist ideas, were not powerful. And so the work week was indeed a six-day work week with which day off? Sunday, the Christian, the Christian holiday, not the Jewish holiday. So if you weren't going to work Shabbos, that often meant you weren't going to work. And that became the ultimate test. And most of the, most of the Jews who went to America failed that test. Sometimes, if you had a Jewish employer, but no, usually I mean, not. No, I mean, that's I mean, not. That was your question. What was it? Because of the time. <coughs> I know you know how Shabbos that's completely off the table. But I, well, were there back then any jobs that you were able to do that weren't technically being Shabbos? Sure. But they were few and far between. Meaning, like could you have a job? Could you be a school teacher? Although there's writing involved, but maybe you could avoid writing somehow. Most jobs, inevitably, invariably, would, would entail some kind of malacha. And just by being in that scenario, you know, we need the surroundings. You've heard me say this uh, once, twice, 20 times, that um, we are, we are uh, determined by our social surroundings. It's the Rambam in, in Hilchus Deus, Perik Vav, Allah, Allah, and Beis. He says, we're defined by our social environment. So if the people around you are keeping Shabbos, we're much more apt to keep Shabbos. If not, then not. And it, just by being in a non-Shabbistic environment, the likelihood that they would keep Shabbos and that their children would keep Shabbos was, was decreasing. Um, often it's said that um, more than Jews kept Shabbos, Shabbos kept the Jews. And when these Jews stopped keeping Shabbos, that was often the end. Um, Unless they were self-employed, unless unless they had some kind of a special uh, setup, the um, economy was very tight in America, and you could starve to death unless you worked and often worked on Shabbos. At least that was the prospect. Um, some went to shul, 
And that's why you have a phenomenon, you, think you see this sometimes still lingering in some of the young Israels, you see this, a vestige of this with the Hashkama minion, the early rising minion. Why was it early rising? It wasn't necessarily to fulfill the Hidur mitzvah of davening at Neitzachama at the sunrise, but rather so you could daven early on Shabbos morning on your way to, to work. And from shul they'd go right to work, trying as it were to try to uh, dance in both worlds. And um, that worked for some of them, and it generally didn't for most. There were exceptions to the rule, and, and they are remarkable, and I recommend um, a, a wonderful, inspiring work that I, I, I referred to before called All for the Boss. Has anybody here read it? Great book, huh? I read it when I was in ninth grade. Do you remember what happened? The, the protagonist, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman, huge tzaddik, you remember what happened when his parents came to the Golden of Medina and they discovered they could not make a living and they would not compromise yeah, on Shabbos? Job, say, um, on Friday, getting a new job on Monday. But then what happened when they found that they could not make it, they went back to the old country and they didn't have enough money so they had to leave their son. Did they was, <coughs> not, not his, his parents. They're not a major focus in the book. We don't, we don't really read so much about them. But they, they went back to the old country. Rather than, that, rather than compromise on Shabbos. And uh, that, of course, had a huge impact on the son. And he wound up, they, got, they found a place for him by, by family, but the family was not so nice. And they insisted that he pay a rent that a, a, a young teenager could barely afford. And uh, rather than <coughs> fall prey to their uh, corruption, their, their, their mechanisms, he actually left and was forced to spend Shabbos on a public park bench. <coughs> and it was there as a child, he, I mean, as a young teenager, that he resolved that he, if he had to spend Shabbos like that, insofar as he had anything to do with it, he would try to ensure that no Jew would um, have to do that as far as he had the chance. Right, right. He became known as the Machnis Orchim, the great hospitable uh, Jew of the Lower East Side. Uh, and he, his, his, his uh, tales of, and his Shabbos tables, legendary with. Uh, anybody and everybody who wanted to be in what wanted to be there, were welcome. Children slept on the floor. His own children slept on the floor so the guests could be given the beds. Uh, and he wanted to make sure the Jews who wanted to keep Shabbos and keep the rest of the mitzvahs would be, uh, would be permitted to. He, he um, was extraordinary. The, the stories there describe his dedication to Kodesh Baruch Hu, to learning. He gave shir. He makarov the young Rav, Rav Scheinberg, who would go off on to become one of the Gedolei Hador, recently uh, passed away a couple years ago. Um, he uh, and actually married Rabbi Yaakov Yosef's daughter. His, uh, his, his, um, of his five children, his fourth, his fourth child, his uh, second last, second youngest child. <coughs> but he would do things like, for example, as he was on his way to work, he would um, pass a bakery that had a tuga, had a had a kashri certificate. But um, non-Jews were doing the baking in the bakery. So he would go in, knowing the laws of Bishalakum, he would throw a log on the fire. And that way, it was Jewish, just by doing that one gesture, that one act, he rendered the cooking um, Bishal Israel and save all the Jews eating there from violating a prohibition. He um, was a pioneer in all kinds of areas, as many of the... Um, uh, the Jews assimilated and the women became immodest, accepting the standards, the styles of the day. He, at his simchas, um, always made sure his daughters walked around carrying shawls, wraps, uh, so that they can approach all the immodest women and say, here, please put this on. My father requests it by, Jewish, by, by the standards of Jewish law. And that was unheard of. Can you imagine going over to American and telling them how to dress and to dress in the first place? 
um, and, and he insisted on, on, on not compromising. Um, he himself uh, was a fur trader and took a very small income in order to avoid Chil Shabbos, which he never was, never reduced himself to. When his wife, one story, his wife is drying the tzitzit on the laundry, on the laundry line outside, and that's where, of course, the women converse with the neighbors, everybody's hanging out the laundry, and when, it's, when her Jewish neighbors saw her hanging up the tzitzit, the, the Talit Katan for her husband and her son, um, they mocked her. They said, you know, in the golden Medina, in the golden state, you, you, in, in, this, in this America, the promised land, um, they will never make it if they wear those here. And she very proudly, uh, you know, re retorted, this is the way, this is the way a Jew, a Jew uh, lives, regardless of where, where they're living. Um, we see this ultimately, that the people who were most their nefesh to keep Shabbos, indeed their, their descendants, uh, would go on to keep Shabbos and more, and most American Jews did not well, did not fare well. Here were the stakes. See, let's say hypothetically, again, I can't really answer to the people who are already um, already losing tradition in the old country or those who came over to America with intent to totally uh, blend in with the Americans. But you know, a lot of our ancestors coming to uh, coming to the uh, coming to America to Canada. Um, they actually meant well, they were sincere, they were good uh, Hamish Jews who wanted to keep Shabbos. But even if they wanted to, the odds were utterly against their being able to transmit that to their children. America in the late 19th century, the early 20th century, um, in public school, for example, um, the system said that the, that the cure-all, the panacea to all ills of society was education, but not the kind of education that we talk about in Torah, but an American education to become to become uh, completely integrated into the system, um, and they brainwash the kids, and kids are very easily brainwashed. Among other things, if you ever notice child behavior, one thing that children need desperately is to fit in, be accepted wherever they are. It's one of the reasons why children. You ever see children speaking a foreign tongue and then coming to a new uh, culture? They pick up the language very, very quickly. They need to. They don't want to be teased by their peers. They need to become accepted. And so kids fell in line. They were indoctrinated to become full Americans, um, which meant, of course, being embarrassed by the previous generations, by mom and dad, and by those, uh, those quaint grandparents who could barely even speak English. How, how humiliating. Don't want to be seen with them in front of my friends, with their funny accents, their illiteracy. Why were they illiterate? They may, their parents may have been Talmud Chachamim and Taira, but they didn't have the secular studies that were uh, that were that were prerequisite to make it in America. And their strange customs and ways all seemed antiquated. Yeah. Also, weren't there a lot of like you're talking about a lot about the kids, but also the adults that wanted to keep Shabbos were prevented from doing so by the the rigorous work. We did that whole. We just yeah, we just described that. Um, right, right. So um, and of course this message was almost in the ether. Was it was all around you that and, and America till today still transmits this message loud and clear. You've made it in the world if you're wealthy. There is no greater success in dream. It's the American dream. It's the Horatio Alger, if you're familiar with that, the American dream, and it's purely measured in monetary and fiscal terms. Uh, doesn't matter if you're Russia, if you have the bank if you have the numbers, uh, they'll celebrate you. And 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 the, the kids picked up on that. They, they 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 even if their parent their parents sometimes were were swept up in the madness that, that is America. 
and, and it remains so to, to a large degree. And even when they say, yes, yes, be Jewish, keep Shabbos, but a lot of that is lip service. Um, when it came down to a bottom line, was about bottom line, was about, was about money. I remember um, years ago having a wonderful student in, in Yeshiva in, in Eretz Yisrael, and parents often send their kids to Eretz Yisrael. I mean, these are Orthodox family, identifying, proudly identifying with uh, somewhere in the, in the scheme of uh, Torah observance. Um, they send a child to Eretz Yisrael to become more committed, but not too Jewish. Uh, in the case of this particular uh, family, and that's often the case too, they want to be Jewish, but not too much. Ever hear such a thing? Yeah. Right, go to yeshiva, but don't get brainwashed. And um, in this case, he, um, this is a young man who was very bright and gotten into Harvard, not about the American dream, Hua Harvard, and he decided he wanted Shana base. And that was World War III. Shana base, you're not gonna, he managed to arrange a deferral from Harvard. Harvard put him off, that was okay. They, they accepted that, but he could go the following year. And even though his mother fell physically ill, uh, he managed to pull off Shana Base. He came back a second year, and in the course of Shana Base, he decided that Harvard wasn't really that nice for a place for a Jewish boy, which I would affirm that. Um, and uh, Harvard's a lot of things, complicated place. I've been there many times, and a lot of students have gone there. Wouldn't wish anybody. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't. Complicated. We talked about some things yesterday, right? Uh, not time for to talk about Harvard per se, but um, he decided in the course of that year that he didn't want to go to Harvard. He's going to transfer to YU. Um, and uh, his mother again fell ill. I mean, psychosomatic, but like ill, physically, seriously ill as a result of it. Because, you know, Jewish smush, but the, the American dream is to go to right, Ivy League. That's what you do. Um, years later, the Chazunish uh, said, I do not agree with any Jewish soul moving to that country recognizing the dangers, the spiritual dangers of being in America. He was articulating what, what already the consensus among the rabbis would be, realizing um, that people might give up their olam haze, olam haba, uh, and, and, and um, for, for assimilation. We've certainly lost more Jews to assimilation than we have to uh, all the wars, all kinds of anti-Semitism. Is that true? For sure. Think about what's going on today. There are reportedly, although it's very hard to get clear numbers in the demographics, but there are reportedly 13 million Jews in the world. You wouldn't know most of them. And they wouldn't, some of them don't even know it themselves. How many religious Jews? Um, I will, at the end of this class, give you modern demographics, uh, what, what they are, but they're fractions. This specific class? It's the largest, yeah, in this particular class in history, we'll get to contemporary demographics. I have all the numbers, and I'm going to update them too because I have them from last year, so I'll try to make it more, more up to date. But um, we are the fastest growing for sure. You've seen the chart. I'll show you this one too, the chart of um, how will your grandchildren be Jewish, comparing totally secular Jews with Reform, conservative, uh, modern Orthodox, and then uh, ultra-Orthodox. And you see in each of the slots, as you move down the line towards greater observance, uh, the grandchildren are overwhelmingly Jewish. But when you get into the secular, even the Reform, um, when you talk about two, uh, you know, two grandparents, um, they're likely to have a fraction, by statistics, a fraction of a Jewish child, a grandchild, come out of them. A tiny fraction, maybe like one-eighth likelihood of that, that their grandchild will be Jewish. Um, that's, that's, that, that was, that's the wave of things. Um, in another instance, uh, I told my story yesterday, and it's mamish relevant to this right now, um, another Gadol Hador, 
uh, more recent, he passed away not long ago, the Tzitz Eliezer, Rebbe Eliezer of Aldenburg, one of the great poskim of, of the 20th century, um, had what I understand was a brother who was an Ilui, was a prodigy who went to America and went off, went off the derech. Um, and I happened to know his son very well because he was my, when I was working in the Reform Synagogue, he was my mentor. Uh, he was the rabbi there, Reform rabbi, and I, at the time when I wasn't, when I was not yet from, I was, no, I was nothing, I had no, no connection with, um, with, with, with much uh, going on in Jewish life. Um, he mentioned to me that he had a family member who was really a big Orthodox rabbi, but only today do I appreciate what that really means. Um, and my neighbor upstairs also happens to be in the same family. And he told me the background to the story when, when um, after the brother went off and the son went off, um, the Tzitz Eliezer said that people shouldn't even visit America. He felt the dangers, the spiritual dangers were so great. I mean, maybe this, it seems odd to hear this. I don't, you've heard such things before? Such a, such, a, such a notion before, especially those of us who come from America and grew up and it all feels so normal and fine, especially when Baruch Hashem in the latter part of the 20th century, there are a number of from communities that are doing very well. Thank you very much. Uh, so um, that's possible, but that didn't seem like it was likely. And up until World War II, it seemed that Orthodoxy had no chance. And we'll tell that story now. Uh, the first chief rabbi of America, there was such a job and there was such a person. He was the first chief rabbi of America ever and also simultaneously the last. His name was Rav Yaakov Yosef, or Jacob Joseph, as the school is named for him in Staten Island. If people are familiar with the Jacob Joseph School in Staten Island, um, he lived uh, almost 60 years, from 1840 to 1899. Uh, he certainly had uh, great teachers. Rabbi Shaw Salanter was one of his teachers. The Nitziv, who he met uh, a couple days ago in Volozhin, was one of his teachers. Um, and he was originally in the old country, Back in, back in Russia, he was a popular Rav, he was a Magid. What's a Magid? Remember the job? Storyteller like the Magid of Dubno. Uh, and um, he was a big Talmud Chacham in different jobs around Europe. And uh, in New York, the Ashkenazi community offered him the job of chief rabbi. Um, and eventually, he didn't want it. Uh, if you remember, the Malbim was offered the position, and Baruch Hashem for him, he didn't take it. But Rav Yaakov Yosef did wind up taking it in 1888. He was in debt which was pretty common if you were Jew in Eastern Europe, you had no way of paying off your debts. And here's a chance for Parnassah and a chance possibly to uh, do Kiddush Hashem and try to elevate the situation over in the Golden of Medina, and he took it. And when he came, he was offered a job that was virtually impossible. The, uh, there were so many, first of all, factions. Why we think today the Jewish life is, is, is broken up and uh, it's it, 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 uh, factionalized with lots of different subgroups and, su and subgroups of subgroups. That's not just today. That, that was the case back then, too. Uh, how many, uh, you know, the, the um, two, Jew, two Jews, three opinions, that's the shul I wouldn't step foot in. Um, that was certainly uh, very, very um, much the case in America in the, when, when he came over in 1888. And the idea of... Um, trying to rise up and influence in Torah and, uh, and, and resist this huge momentum against the wave, against tradition, um, was virtually impossible. And um, he had struggles from almost the, the, the beginning of his job. He, um, he was extremely qualified and he did some good things. He actually, one of his great successes was that he, he installed, he, when he came, he found the situation of Cassius was deplorable. 
it wasn't kosher. And he managed to arrange for um, legitimate shochtim to get the jobs and to supervise, at least in New York, in the New York Ashkenazi community, they should be a, a, a halachically viable uh, system of kashrus. He, he installed mashkichim um, to oversee the process. Um, he also, his second, his second great accomplishment was to oversee one of the first yeshivos in America, what was called Eitz Chaim, also named for Velozhin. Uh, first was established on the Lower East Side, and he had a big job in establishing the yeshiva in the very beginning. Um, Eitz Chaim Yeshiva would be one of the earlier iterations, what would later be called Ritz. The rabbinic program at YU was originally in the, in the guise of Eitz Chaim Yeshiva. Um, but they gave him flack at every turn, and he lost so many, so many struggles. He died of a stroke when he was 59 years old, and some say the job killed him. Um, and then terrible, terrible uh, footnote to the story. Um, at his funeral, there were thugs, and then the thugs were joined by policemen who started beating up the mourners. Uh, you could read actually the news clippings of the event. Um, but that's just, a, that's just a small footnote. For many people, the death of the... Because anti-Semitism, we mentioned yesterday, was much better in America, but it existed. Well, Rabbi, that's ridiculously extreme. I know, because you're a product of you're a product of late 20th century America. But this kind of thing is no, no. It was started by the thugs. The thugs started beating up Jewish mourners, and when the mourners started to respond, the policemen entered the fray. The policemen joined too, and there was a unmissable strain of anti-Semitism that ran through everything. And if you have a chance to meet a few Jews and say, well, no, they started it because they were in this brawl with these other people, that was the policeman's line of defense. Uh, for many people, the death of the first and really only chief rabbi of America, what it signaled was the inability of not just rabbis, but orthodoxy in general to make it in the new free world. Uh, there was no future from this perspective in America. Because of that, uh, there was an old movement from the old country that also crossed the shores and made it to America that actually considered itself the voice of tradition, a response to reform. Reform was now increasingly dominant in America, and, and it, reform was ideally suited to America, to American uh, liberalism, pluralism, um, but as a voice of tradition, a new movement made it across the way from Germany into the new shores and actually picked up and started to do very well and would be at, um, in, uh, would eventually be, in the earlier part of the 20th century, the largest denomination of Jews. What is the name of the movement? Anybody know? No, no, conservative. So we haven't talked about conservative, and this is a good chance to, to, uh, to do, do a quick survey of what they call the conservative movement. Notice I resist using the term conservative Judaism, like Reformed Judaism. Um, I understand from a traditional perspective, they're not, a, they're not variations of Judaisms. There's Tyra. There's Tyra. These were sects, much like the sects, the Baitusim, the Tzdukim, that broke away from normative Judaism. In the Second Temple period, these were breakaways. Originally, what, was, what we think of as conservative Judaism started uh, back in 1845 in Germany, and it wasn't called that. It was called Positive Historical Judaism. Was anybody by chance, I gave a quick uh, rundown on this in a shear at 1230 on Sundays. That familiar to you? No, so I'll review it very quickly now. Um, 
1845, Zacharias Frankel, who was, we would have recognized him as a very traditional Rav, Shomer Torah, Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Mitzvos, um, who was connected to the early reform movement, but outraged when the reform rejected Hebrew language and kashrus and the basic rudiments of what it is to be Jewish. And he broke away and he said, no, no. In this new world of the Enlightenment, the Jews don't have to abandon tradition. They can affirm tradition. And he and this new movement, Positive Historical Judaism, came and asserted that Hashem existed. And that Hashem indeed gave the Torah to the Jews at Har Sinai. And their mitzvahs in the Torah, and those mitzvahs are obligatory, they're binding on all Jews. So far, so good, huh? Okay, we're in good shape so far. Um, but here's where it changes. Here's where, here's where um, everything, everything went down. Zacharias Frankel said the, um, that the idea of this new movement was that there is a Torah-ordained right to change observance, not like Moses Mendelssohn exactly said it, he said they, they, their, new, their twist was depending on what the evolving Jewish people considered manageable. Some of the old laws simply couldn't be uh, maintained in the new post-enlightenment world, and those could be abandoned. When he said that, he was of the assumption, much like Moses Mendelssohn, that 95% of Torah could be maintained. Most of it was adaptable and could, could be integrated into a modern lifestyle, but he felt that some of the things were antiquated and could be rejected. That was the basis of the new movement. Who determines what can be changed. So they call that Catholic Israel. Catholic meaning universal, the universal average Jew. You look to that person, he said, if he could manage it, whatever he could maintain, that would be good. We could, we could, we could, uh, we could, we could embrace that. Um, even if it meant rejecting a mitzvah deiraisa, even Torah mitzvahs, if they were seen as irrelevant or somehow too imposing in the modern world, um, then, then, then they rejected them. Um, they ran the, the, the whole idea. Today, you won't find it. You won't find it anywhere. Even in the, let's say, the write-up of the conservative movement, it has redefined itself because it's constantly been forced as it evolved over the generations. Constantly would have to redefine itself. So today, this is an embarrassment to them because they realize, on its own terms, it has no basis in Torah. They cite one of the uh, one of one of them. Louis Jacobs has this whole idea that maybe there's precedent for this in the Talmud. The Talmud has an idea, go out and see what the people do. You ever hear that idea? Okay, go out and see what the people can manage. But the Talmud's talking about new xeros, new regulations that rabbinic, they were rabbinic, and by definition, therefore, you could sometimes adjust them to what people could, could manage. Nobody ever said that, oh, I'm sorry, Shabbos observance is too onerous for you, it's too much of a burden, and therefore you can abandon it. That has no place. That's clearly a, a foreign idea to anything to anything in normative Judaism. Um, the Orthodox establishment, of course, distanced themselves. Had nothing to do with historical Judaism. They recognized they they uh, recognized the bankruptcy of the ideas. Um, Frankel thought that the Orthodox would form an, um, would, would 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 affirm them, maybe as a chance for survival in the modern era. Um, in the end, historical Judaism never took off in Germany. There was like a small following, but it didn't in the United States. Um, and it would become, it would be called conservative or American conservatism 
the true or architect of American conservatism uh, is a name that's well known. I don't know if you know about his life exactly. It's a fellow by the name of Solomon Schechter. There are a bunch of schools named for him. He was a he was a he was a rabbi. All of the conservative from this generation, late nineteenth, early twentieth century conservative rabbis, they were all people of strong Torah background. One of their numbers, Shaul Lieberman, wrote a commentary on the Tosefta. You have to know a little bit to, to write a commentary on the Tosefta. Um, so they definitely knew their, their, their stuff. Often people say that what was conservative back in these days looks a lot like modern orthodoxy today. That's, if you've ever heard such a statement, that's a comparison that's made. And I can see why people make the comparison. The difference, I would say, even though it's hard to define exactly which modern orthodoxy or what modern orthodoxy is today, but one thing that I think that modern orthodoxy, nobody in modern orthodoxy would really say this idea of, the, of Catholic Israel, that we'll, we'll accept those laws that we can, we can manage in the world. No, no, even liberal modern orthodox rabbi would say that we'll reject those things that can't be integrated. Um, that was unique conservative. Solomon Schechter had another claim of fame. He was involved in the discovery of the Cairo Geniza. Is that a familiar thing to you? I'm giving you... Remember, all these little details I'm trying to give over to you are well-known phenomenon in Jewish life. And if you want to be a, a card-carrying, knowledgeable Jewish, Jewish person in the modern era, you should know what the Cairo Geniza is. Cairo Geniza was simply an old shul, uh, guess where, um, where they um, had a repository of holy writings, a Geniza, where we put Shamos, um, that it was around for over a thousand years and virtually untouched. And so for scholars, it was a treasure trove of certainly Torah information, but not just that, it was also all kinds of sociological, uh, sociological, anthropological, uh, you know, great, great um, um, sources to convey Jewish life. There were, there was, um, I, I referred to it in this class before, they found among other things, Kisve Yad, handwritten documents from the Rambam, letters that he wrote, and, and other, other great treasures. Anyway, he had, he had a hand in, 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 in finding it and being involved in the scholarship there. Um, he liked to identify with Frankel, even though the original conservative, the historical Judaism was much more traditional. Um, but the American version, conservatism, of this movement, which grew rapidly in the early 1900s, uh, would change considerably and would, would, would adapt to America and adopt many of the liberal, um, liberal cultural standards of America. It grew. Uh, to become, by World War II, the largest, by far, uh, Jewish group. It was democratic in nature. It was very inclusive, which made it ideal for America. Uh, over the generations, it, it found difficulty defining its niche because as it strayed more and more from tradition, from classic Orthodox tradition, it, it became inevitably closer and closer to reform to the point that um, the two are often... Um, Intertwined. I, I found this was a reality when I was, uh, when I'm connected with the Wexner Graduate Fellows. People receiving these uh, nice scholarships from a wealthy man from all these different denominations. It's extremely common to find intermarriage between the different denominations, with the exception of Orthodoxy. Uh, maybe there's one case I'm thinking of a very very uh, I think a very liberal modern Orthodox um, rabbi who married a very right wing conservative woman uh, educator. And um, other than that, almost all of my Wexner colleagues that I that I think of, uh, I think of, you know, she's conservative, he's reform, he's reconstructionist, uh, she's conservative, right? 
I think I did this before, right? Uh, you know, she's she's reform and she's reconstructionist and like that. And there's a lot of lot of intermarriage between the different movements, but not really so much between uh, between them and Orthodox. The um, <clears throat> Jewish Theological Seminary is their major uh, institution. It's in, um, it's in Upper Manhattan. They describe often um, their institution, I think this is true as to today as it's been the last half century, they, this is the way they describe it. Um, JTS has an Orthodox faculty um, established to train conservative rabbis to serve a reform laity. And it's, 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 it's actually, um, there's a lot of truth to it, even though it's a generalization, it's a joke, but they say it's an orthodox faculty that teaches to train, to, you know, it's established to train conservative rabbis who serve a reform laity. Most of the people who belong to conservative synagogues, certainly from the later part of the 20th century, uh, were in, in their practice and their observance, were in many ways indistinguishable from reform nominally Jewish, you know, they kept certain observance. The women often wear those cute doily things on their heads. You ever see those? I would want to put my, I would put my drink on them, but I thought that'd be rude, you know. <clears throat> the, um, we see there's a slippery slope. You know, you start with this idea that of, of, of Catholic Israel that we can change according to the people. The critics were right. They said, you start changing, you start nipping by the, you start changing the basic definitions of what's acceptable halakhically, it's a slippery slope. Inevitably, you'll abandon tradition. And you can trace the rulings of the conservative movement over the 20th into the 21st century, and you can see the decline. I'll give you a few of the landmark rulings. Um, from the 1950s in conservative synagogues, cantors, which is a, a job now in American Jewry because it's a performance to some degree. You have to have somebody up there singing. In traditional Jewish life, a chazan, it's true. And they have, especially in German Orthodox circles, in neo-Orthodox circles, you do have a choir and a chazan too. But in classic, according to halacha, you need none of the above. You need somebody who get up, gets up there and davens on behalf of the community. He should be, before having a good voice, he should, he should be a Talmud Chacham. He should be somebody at least who knows the halachos. So the idea of performing for it, what's that again? I heard that that's not true when you said before having a good voice, you should know the halachos. Because, um, well, I mean, somebody. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, I quoted it before. It's true. He said, but, the, but think about the difference. What he, the person wanted to know which Kabbalistic ideas he should have in mind during the Tekiah Shofar and during the, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, it was, it was in Rosh Hashanah, and, um, and Rabbi Israel said you should basically have a, have a pleasant voice and be able to do the job adequately. But that's a different insight. He's saying more than having the deep mystical ideas, you should, you're, you're doing a job, Dina Mamonos, you owe it to the people who are hiring you to do that adequately, but the idea of shul as a performance was very much in the spirit of Christianity where the clergy gets up in their, in their heavy robes and they face the congregation and perform for their congregants who remain increasingly passive uh, you know, observers. You daven for us, you be religious for us. Sort of in the Catholic mode of going to the confessional box and I'll dump my sins on the priest and then leave and go and, and sin again and then dump, come back to the box and dump my sins on it again. That became increasingly the mode of, Mer of American Judaism. Um, and that was signified when the professional cantors started facing the congregation from raised bimas, right, on stage as it were. 
it's the antithesis. Think about the Avod in the base of Mikdash. Remember when we went to the Machon the Mikdash and we saw the positioning of the Levim? The Levim actually stand with their backs to the people, singing to Kaddish Baruch. Because ultimately, when we're there, we're there not as a performance, we're there to, uh, to serve Hashem. Um, but you they, can mix of that now. You do, you do. Sometimes there's facing, but again, it's, it depends why they're facing. It's facing not necessarily to perform, to do a show. Sometimes the Rav faces because he's, he's a figurehead. I mean, in, in, it's true. In, in, many, in many shuls, you have the Rav, the Abbas team. He's there, but it's a position of cover. But he's not, he's not doing a, a song and a dance for the, for the, for the assembled. Um, in the 1950s also, the conservative came out with what they called shuvas, written in classic halachic style, even if they lacked halachic content, where they um, limited, they allowed limited driving. Why did they allow limited driving? Because, sure. you remember this? Because American Jewry was now, had now made it financially, and now they were moving to the suburbs. And moving to the suburbs meant not being in walking distance of the synagogue anymore. And if you didn't allow them to drive, you'd have no constituents to pay your salary. And since American bottom line is American bottom line, you gotta have the salary and the constituents. So they allow, in halacha, they allow drive, limited driving on Shabbos, together with limited use of electricity. In the, if you look at the wording of the original um, uh, literature, they, they say only for religious purposes meaning only to drive to shul. But the laity didn't care about such fine-tooth distinctions. They read that you could, you could drive, and if you could drive, you could drive to the golf course too, or to go, go do some shopping in the fashion mall. They didn't, they didn't make these uh, distinctions. And within, within, within not even a decade, the use of cars and electricity on Shabbos was justified entirely, uh, supposedly on halachic terms. By 1973, they started counting women in a minion. 1983, they allowed the ordaining of women rabbis, very much keeping up with the uh, politically correct times in America, following about a decade behind reform, as reform made similar changes. But reform, see, reform at least aren't hypocritical about it. Reform make no bones about being some kind of a halachic body. They do their own thing, because that's, that's their own policy. Conservatives still were claiming that they had to justify this on halachic terms. Um, at where we see that they start with the conclusion and work backwards to find the justification in halacha. Um, 2006, already the ruling was made allowing the ordaining or, of gay and lesbian rabbis, and the uh, march goes on. Um, and I just say this uh, by way of giving the overview of, of, of the direction of things. We're going to go back to, our, uh, to the 19th century. But um, this is America as the century, the turn of the 20, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, changing gears. Okay, we'll start this one. We'll get it. We'll, we'll do this one. The uh, Eretz Yisrael, uh, which is going to be increasingly our focus, has, if you remember, been um, very quiet. There have been Jews who've been living in Eretz Yisrael consistently um, since Korban Bais Sheni, and then added by new immigrants. And we've, we've traced these developments um, as, as, as history, as, as we traced the uh, the overview of history um, in Eretz Yisrael. The icon for Jews, especially if we, if we were to tie more back into the 19th century, the icon for centuries, if you had to go to one place, would be not the area of the temple itself, because of course that would be taken over by the Dome of the Rock and then south of there the, um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but by the wall supporting it, the retaining wall on the western side that we know of as the Kosel. And we know 
that the Kosel had been this iconic place, certainly from the days of the early Achronim. Uh, we, we know that the Kosel was signified by, in, in Talmudic literature, the Midrashim talk about the Kosel, but as, a, as an iconic place, as a place to come to Davin, um, you might remember that um, it was not always ex- accessible. Kafter Beferach, when he came to Yerushalayim, he made Aliyah first in 1313. Um, when he first came to Yerushalayim, there was no accessible portion of the Kosel, so he davened by the Eastern Wall. We can picture, picture, looking at it from the vantage point of uh, Harazesim, from the uh, Mount of Olives. Um, that was where the Jews could go in, in, the, in the 14th century. Um, early, from, the, from about maybe a, a, a century or two later, um, we start hearing about the Kosel as being the place the Jews went to, it became the symbol of the lost base of Mikdash. In the 16th century, Suleiman the Magnificent, who built the walls, most, most of the walls around today's old city, was, the legend has it, that he was taken with the plight of Jerusalem, which didn't have many residents. There were Jews, there were some Arabs, but it was small. And it was struggling, and it was poor. And that's one of the reasons why he ordered the wall built around it to now upgrade Jerusalem and make it more attractive. Because until the modern days, um, you, you didn't live in a place unless it had a nice, sturdy, often casemate, which means double-barreled double, uh, wall um, that was nice and stout and, and, and kept, you, kept you relatively safe from intruders. And he built that wall around, around, um, around it. It's one of the predictions um, in the Medrash, in Pirkei de Rebeliezer, it's predicted that the... Um, uh, descendants of Yishmael would build a wall around Yerushalayim, and this seems to be this seems to come true in the days of Suleiman. Um, he completed the wall in 1541, and the legend maintains that the wall, the Kosel itself. I, I just referred to the wall around the old city today. Now I'm talking about the Kosel Maravi, the retaining wall around the Temple Mount that that held the uh, the, the base of Mikdash. So the legend maintained that the Kosel area was submerged under centuries of buildings and garbage and debris. And um, the story goes, if it's true, that a woman from Beit Lechem, a good hour and a half walk, I've done it before, uh, was walking, maybe a little bit less, was walking with, as they tend to walk in this part of the world, with all heaped on top of her head, she can maintain that perfect balance, the garbage, all the refuge from her home stacked high on top of her head. And she slept all the way from Beit Lechem to the area that we know of now as the Kosel to dump her garbage. And when Suleiman's men, who were hunting for, the, uh, for signs of the Kosel, they were looking around and they asked her, uh, you know, where, what are you doing and why are you coming all the way from Beit Lechem with your garbage? She looked at them nonplussed and said, don't you know, everybody here knows the tradition is this is where everybody brings their garbage. If that rings any bells with history, remember who initiated this idea? Um, the Romans. The Romans and Shani turned the area around the coastal into a deliberate dumping ground as a, as a lesson to the Jews. You don't, you don't fight back with the Romans. And um, over a millennia later, they're still throwing their garbage out there. Wait, and was the woman Jewish or not? No, no, an Arab woman from Beit Lechem oh. was throwing her garbage out. And Suleiman's men, men looked at one another and said, hey, maybe this is a lead. And they started digging, and what do you know? They found some of the original stones of the Kosel itself. They cleared, Suleiman ordered, after the, after the news was, uh, was, was transmitted to him, he ordered the place to be swept away, and um, the area was washed with rose water, and eventually, even Klal Yisrael, even some Jews under Suleiman were given limited rights 
for the first time to pray there. There were reports of Jews in previous generations. For the first time, at least in Suleiman's days, they were, they were given a right, uh, the, the opportunity to pray there. Um, we hear in 1625, about a half a century later, we hear about um, arranged tefillahs at the Kosel. Those are the, one of the first mentions that Jews had actually organized davening there. This is actually nice to do. We're going to be, oh, I'm coming in for Shabbos, Mr. Hashem, and uh, we're going to be davening together by the Kosel. So it's kind of no, nice to know the background to what, what, it, what it's been for the Jews. It was not always a pusher thing. It was usually impossible through history to have any access. To, da, to daven there was a dream. Uh, and, and, and you'll see this unfolding. Um, over the centuries, the area uh, close to the coastal, and there wasn't much. Did I show you my pictures? You've been to the Kleine Kosel, the little Kolto? Wow. Okay, we have, we have our work cut out for us. I have to take you there this year. Um, they're little alleyways. Those were, that, was the, that was the coastal. Two little strips of land that Jews had, and sometimes uh, more Jews that could fit in there, a little access to the coastal, to the stones of the coastal, to Davin there. Um, and even these were, were often closed off to the Jews. It was often built up by Arab communities. There was, over the area that you can picture today of the Kosal Plaza, that big wide open area, was actually a community called the Mugrabi, it was a Muslim community, the Mugrabi Quarter that lived there. Um, and there was almost no access to the Jewish area of the Kosal. From the late 1830s, a wealthy Jew tried to buy, ho to buy houses nearby and he failed. Uh, it, was hard, it was hard to somehow arrange for uh, Jews to be able to have a place there. In May of 1940, uh, this is the time, we haven't gotten there yet, but um, the Egyptians were still, the Egyptians had temporarily seized power over Palestine from the Ottomans. So Ibrahim, was that? From between 1831 and 1840, the Egyptians were in charge here, and then the Ottomans came back. So the Pasha from Egypt, his name was Ibrahim Pasha, um, actually comes, comes out with, the for the first time, a prohibition of Jews to pave any passageway in front of the Pocosel. Um, they're not allowed, I'm, I'm quoting his prohibition, he says, you're not allowed to raise your voice in prayer and you're not allowed to display any books there. Well, how are you supposed to daven? Right? No sidurim, they can't, can't daven there. So he's effectively making it impossible for Jews to be able to be at the Kosel. Uh, Jews would bribe their way around the decrees, but that was increasingly difficult. They had to show special papers to prove that they were permitted to pray there. Um, there and also by the Kleine Kosel. By the mid-19th century, Rav Yosef Schwartz writes, the wall is visited by all of our brothers on every Chag and every big, on every big occasion, um, and the large space at its foot is often so packed that um, people can't perform their avoda there at the same time they have to take turns. That's, that's what the situation is by the Kosel. 1875, Montefiore, right? Montefiore, our great hero, you remember, who always is trying to help the Jews out. He himself, he says, I made great efforts to make the Kosel a place uh, that, he says, is Ma'ale Charedes Kodesh, who brings up the awe of, of, of holiness. He said, but he failed too. He made a big attempt to try to pay off the authorities and, and give a proper place for the Jews. You know what I mean when I say give a proper place? In other words, make it legal to have a space that Jews could stand in and daven in the closest to the holiest place in the world to us. And that was impossible. He failed. Even Montefiore failed. Um, he tried, in fact, to put in proper benches. There was no place to sit. There was not a bench there. He tried to put a schacha, some kind of a, 
a shady area uh, so that people didn't have to be uh, scorched in the sun or, or, or protected, protect them from the rain. Um, and he failed in all these endeavors. The only thing he succeeded to do is he, he brought in a couple of simple marble blocks and people sat in the marble blocks. Um, and then soon after that, those marble blocks were stolen. Um, there is discussion, if you stare, if you can picture the Kosel by the Kosel Plaza, you'll notice that the upper layers, uh, the upper courses, are unusual and not the same style stones as in the lower area of the Kosel. So some say that it was Montefiore who added the upper 11 layers of the smaller stones, um, which are just below, that's actually not the topmost layer of stones. There are three top courses that the Mufti, the Arab Mufti, would add in 1924, but right below there, there are 11 rows that some people attribute to Montefiore. Uh, Montefiore is not the last Jew to try to help us out. In 1887, uh, uh, over a decade later, Baron Rothschild tries to buy the entire area for Jews and fails. Even Baron Rothschild fails. And then, repeatedly, there were other attempts made um, before and after. In 1912, um, Bank Afek, one of the early Jewish banks, later became Bank Leumi, which still exists today, um, almost succeeded in buying the area. They almost got it, and before they actually closed on the deal, World War I broke out and havoc broke out, and, and the, the, the whole project failed, it collapsed. Um, during the war, the Turkish government again tried to sell it to the Jews, and the Jews paid money. They never, they never got their money back, but they never got the rights either, and, and the Jews at this point didn't have the funds. I'm going to stop here talking. I'm going to stop here with the story of the Kosel, uh, which is a story. Pick up on this because we're going to resume it later on. It gets more dramatic, and it gets most dramatic in the Six Day War. What winds up happening with the Kosel Maravi? Um, come tomorrow, Bezras Hashem, we're going to tell um, an important story uh, that's with a little repetition, but a lot of new ideas about what happens. Um, if you want to understand what happened in Eretz Israel, the division between the different communities, Haredi, Dati, Chiloni, uh, ultra-Orthodox, national religious, secular, um, you won't understand it without understanding the story of what's called the Pumos Shemitah, which we partly told when we, when we, when we walked through the uh, remains of Masqueret Batya, but uh, we'll, tell, we'll tell it in dramatic style. It's a really interesting story, too. So that's tomorrow. Bezras Hashem.